Oh, thank you. Thank you, Gospel Ensemble and Ketrick and everyone. Uh, she lives in you. She lives in you. Isn't that right? That's right. She lives in you. He, he lives, lives in you, all of us. Does it help you feel chosen and special? Yeah, it does. We're going to talk about that some throughout the series, what it means to be exceptional or what it means to be chosen and how that's worked in and through our lives together. And this book that we've chosen to read isn't an easy book. When I uh, said to Reverend Vicki, this is the one I want to do, she looked at me and she said, are you sure? Because we normally have a selection of books there. She had some. She thought I would go for this one. I said, no, I, I like this one. He said, well, that one's more like a textbook. It's a little bit harder to get through. And so, but I said, but it's the one I want to do because I think our congregation is ready for it and would like to know what this book has to share. And the book is Stand Your Ground by Kelly Brown Douglas. Um, I wanted to do it because I know Kelly Brown Douglas. I met her 20 years ago under some interesting circumstances, and when I met her, she preached something that sort of knocked me off of my pew, and I remembered that to this day. She was preaching at a LGBT gathering of about 600 people in Atlanta, and this is 20 years ago, before churches had moved very much, and RMCC was the only church, really, MCCs were doing the work that they were doing in those days. And so this is a bunch of queer United Methodists that were gathering in Atlanta, and, and she was a professor there in Atlanta, and she was the director of the King Center. And she came, and she brought us a word, and she started talking about creeds, Christian creeds. And you will hear our new MCC statement of faith later in the service, but as she was talking about creeds, she said, most creeds miss it. Most creeds ask you to state a belief about how Jesus was born, and about how Jesus died. Most creeds do a belief about how Jesus was born and died. And I, I can say the Apostles' Creed verbatim. I can say probably half the Nicene Creed, you know, with some help from a book, I can do most of it. But she said what they miss is the life. The creeds ask us to make statements of belief about beginning and ending, but they say nothing about the life. And she said, that's what being a disciple is about. <laughs> if we are followers of the way, we need to know about the life that Jesus lived. And so she said that, it knocked me off my pew, and I remembered her ever since. And I said to Reverend Vicki, we need to do Kelly Brown Douglas. Uh, she may knock some of the rest of us off our pews as we go through this together. And I hope that experience for you. What happened in 1972? Do any of y'all know what happened in 1972 to this community of faith? What? Anyone? <laughs> we began as a church, 1972, 45 years ago. We began as a church. And so we're going to have our 45th anniversary the last Sunday of April, and we want you to plan for that. But seven, in 1972, 45 years ago, uh, we became a church. We'd been praying before that, and we'd been uh, planning before that, but that's when we became a church 45 years ago in 1972. So I want you to have that in your head as I tell this story. Also in 1972, uh, our family got made. In 1972, my father and my mother got married. I was 11 years old 
and I just turned 12 shortly after that, but that was in 1972, was our new family got formed. And our, my single mom, two-kid family that was always on the margins, never had enough, wasn't sure how we would pay the rent or the car payment, all of a sudden got transformed in 1972 when we married my dad, still my dad, who was the coach of the neighborhood football team. And so all of a sudden I went from being, you know, like this little scrawny family over here that no one paid much attention to, to I was the coach's son. (laughs) You know, we had ever even looked at football before then, but I was the coach's son. And, And that made me feel special. That made me feel chosen that he and my mom got married and that my dad was the coach. Uh, it felt, felt good in my life. And, and, it, and we, we just sort of looked mainstream all of a sudden. There was a father, a mother, and three kids, you know, and we, and we could just like blend in with everyone then and not stand out and just get all the privileges of what it meant to be uh, a now intact family after my mother's first two divorces. You know, now we were intact, you know, and it looked like it. And we changed churches, not so that no one would know our history, but because it was closer to the school and closer to our neighborhood. But no one knew that story. They just saw us as the plumbers. And they knew the plumbers had the second pew from the front of the church on the right-hand side. And if you knew if you came in, you didn't sit there, we'd be nice to you. Right? We wouldn't tell you to move. Less than everyone. Be nice to <laughs> someone sitting in your place. Don't tell them to move. Find out who they are. Go to lunch with them. But... The church, Gethsemane, knew that that was our pew, that second pew at the front. And so this is in like the first six months of our new family. I come running down the hallway, the education wing, to the front door. My dad, the coach, is the usher Sunday. That's his Sunday to be an usher. So he's there open the door. I say, hi, Dad. And I run down the long aisle to the front of the church to sit in our second pew. And as I sit down there, my mom looks at me. I don't know why she's telling me this. But also in our pew are some friends of ours. And mom says, this is now their family pew, too. And our friends were Effie and Maydale and Mansell that we knew from the apartments we used to live in and also from school. And as as she said that, she said, you remember who our family was before we got married? She said, we all got married before we got married. And said, so this is Effie and Maydale Mansell, a single parent with two kids they're taking care of. And now they're part of our family, too. My mom just couldn't live in mainstream very long. We didn't know what we were doing, but in that 1972 Gethsemane Sharpstown church, this was the first black family. And my mom invited them to come and sit down on the second pew in front and be a part of our family. We were lucky that my dad was the coach because it made a difference in how people treated us. But we had invited them into our space, and we didn't know how unsafe it was going to be. We just didn't know. But we made it through. So one of the reasons we're doing this study today is because of my mom. And she taught me to invite people in all the way to the front pew and make them call it home. Audrey Lord writes, for those of us who live at the shoreline, standing upon the constant edges of decision, crucial and alone. For those of us who cannot indulge the passing dreams of choice, who love in doorways coming and going in the hours between dogs, looking inward 
and outward at once, before and after, seeking a now that can breed futures, like bread in our children's mouths, so that their dreams will not reflect the death of ours. For those of us who were imprinted with fear like a faint line in the center of our foreheads, learning to be afraid with our mother's milk. For by this weapon, this illusion of some safety to be found, the heavy-footed hope to silence us. For all of us, this instant and this triumph, we were never meant to survive. And when the sun rises, we are afraid. It might not remain. And when the sun sets, we are afraid. It may not rise again. When our stomachs are full, we are afraid of indigestion. And when our stomachs are empty, we are afraid. We may never eat again. When we are loved, we are afraid. Love will vanish. When we're alone, we're afraid. Love will never return. And when we speak, we are afraid. Our words will not be heard nor welcomed, but when we are silent, we are still afraid. So it is better to speak, remembering we were never meant to survive. The question, could Trevon have stood his ground on that sidewalk? No. He was never meant to survive. We, Trevon and I, aren't chosen. And that's why when my daughters walk out of my door with and leave the safety of our home with the African-American men that they love, I don't rest well until I hear the key in the door and they come back in because I know we were never meant to survive. I know and they know that we aren't chosen. You see, all of us have been sold a bill of goods we have been taught the American story, and the American story we have been told is the, that the American story is inextricably linked to God's story. What we've been told, or it could have just been me who has been told, is that God is and will act in and through America's history and might to bring about God's vision into the world. And this vision was, is, and shall be effectively indistinguishable from Anglo-Saxon American vision for freedom and democracy. And that vision is cloaked in a system called whiteness. In case you have not noticed, uh, that cloak doesn't quite fit me. The Anglo-Saxon American myth suggests that the further removed one is from the Anglo-Saxon family, the further one is removed from God. Whiteness in this respect is not simply cherished property, but it's sacred property. It is virtually the gateway to divinity, 
the key to salvation, the bastion of freedom. As the evangelical Protestant hymn suggests, salvation requires that we become white as snow. Within the religious narrative of Americans' exceptionalism, anything that cannot pass the test of whiteness cannot get to God. In this regard, non-whiteness is not simply an offense against the myth. It's an offense against God. You see, what is on the other side of whiteness is also on the other side of God. We were never meant to survive. We aren't chosen. When my mom decided to not stay chosen, to not stay exceptional, I saw something I hadn't seen before. She might have done it because of her parents, but not because of the way you think. We used to go visit my grandpa and step-grandmother, we called Daddy and Dottie. You can imagine what kind of family I'm from, Daddy and Dottie. They lived in a two-story place on stilts next to the bayou in Rose City. And Rose City is between Beaumont and Vider. And uh, we would go, not too often, we'd go to see them in Rose City. And uh, this is about uh, when I was seven years old, eight years old. And we thought it was just an amazing place on the bayou there. And they had these cut-off telephone poles that they had this big ship rope on that was, went up and down around the yard. And we liked to try and walk on that and not fall off. They also had all these juniper bushes that had these berries with points on them that we could throw real hard at each other and see if they hurt. And what was most fascinating about this place was this bar, because my grandparents owned the bar that was next door. It was the only thing on this part of property that you really had to know where it was to find it. And so this bar had a big, huge oak tree growing up through the middle of the bar and through the roof. And as an eight-year-old kid, I thought that was fascinating. There was a tree in the building that grew through the roof, and the roof was around it. I thought that was fascinating. So we spent some time there that was pretty playful time, and we enjoyed it. And one Sunday, I was having some kind of diner food in the bar where my grandfather was behind the cash register over there, and some people walked into the bar, two men, and all of a sudden, I see him grab a gun from underneath the cash register. He grabs a gun, and he starts chasing these two men out of his space, saying, get out of my establishment, we don't serve you. About 1967. And two field workers had come in from the oil fields, one was black and one was white. And my grandfather took that gun to chase out the black man and the white man that was with him. I had not ever noticed before that it was a white-only space. I didn't know that Rose City and Vider were key places of the Klan. My eyes just hadn't been able to see it. I was white. I didn't see beyond what I'd known it was really sad for me to recognize that I couldn't see it. Exceptionalism, whiteness, keeping people away, having it be unsafe for anyone to enter into places that were not welcoming of them. And then I realized that I'm still that way today. Last year when we started the Jim Crow study, we started learning about different laws that are in place and systems that are still in place today and meant purposefully to harm people of color. I got mad and angry. 
I got mad and angry at the laws, but I got mad and angry that I didn't see them. I got mad and angry that it was happening all around me, and I just couldn't see. A friend of mine, Gil Caldwell, later said to me, um, not later than that, but when I was working at Reconciling, said he liked me, Troy, because I knew I was racist. And what he meant by that, he knew I had to work. I had to work to not be racist because every day in my life, my whiteness is privileged and exceptional. And Gil would say, I like you because you know that you're racist. He said, you people in the South, Gil was a, a black man, doctor, clergyman from the North New England. And he said, my people around me, they hate systemic racism, but they don't have any relationships with black people. You in the South have relationships with black people, but you don't see systemic racism. Until you see the system of exceptionalism, of chosenness, you just don't see it. In 1619, on the 20th of August, 20 plus Africans arrived on the shores of the British settlement at Jamestown. A few days later, these humans were sold like oxen or horses. They were to be beasts of burden. They didn't look like us, so it was okay to treat them like them. They were obviously not Anglo-Saxon, nor English-speaking, or Protestant. Written into our founding documents, Trevon and I are considered to be three-fifths of a human for over a century. We had no inalienable rights, we did not control our own lives or our liberty. We could not pursue our own happiness. We were not exceptional. Heck, we weren't even human. Neither were the people who lived on this land before the arrival of the pilgrims and the, the Puritans. Forced off their land along a trail of tears into internment camps that we called reservations. Land that was and is repeatedly encroached upon for its resources. But it wasn't much better for the Irish, the Germans, the Italians, the Greeks, the Jews, who also immigrated here. 
They were called Dago, Greaser, Hunky, Wop, Quacker, Spit, Spoot, and Guinea. Signs were regularly posted in storefronts and in factory windows saying simply, Nina, or no Irish need apply. The point of this type of derogatory language was to remind these non-Anglo-Saxon immigrants who may have looked similar but failed the language and religion test to be mindful of their place in Anglo-Saxon American society. European immigrants could at least become grafted into the myth if they chose to become American. And they can do that if they gave up their native language, their customs, their religion, their foods, and a bit of their soul. They could be grafted because of the broadening of the Anglo-Saxon myth to the American myth, the myth of the social construct called whiteness. Some became chosen. Some became exceptional. Trevon wasn't one of them. My grandparents were also known as the Macross. They had worked hard to become white, and they kept track of their white space, making sure all intruders were kept away. There was a moment later in my life when I felt called into ministry and wanted to be ordained when all of a sudden I didn't feel so chosen anymore. I didn't feel so exceptional anymore because the denomination I was a part of wouldn't let that happen, nor was much of anyone else doing that except for metropolitan community churches. And so in that moment, I had a glimpse of what it was to not be a part of the mainstream, a part of the exceptional that kept everyone else out, you know, and the, uh, my eyes were opened a bit more. But I did finally go ahead and get ordained and served in the HIV-AIDS crisis. And one day, a lesbian couple asked me to marry them. And they asked me to marry them before the church would do it. So I did their wedding on the street in front of the church. You know, you can't stop. Just did their wedding on the street in front of the church. The church won't let us do it. There was some fear around that because there had been some threats. And there were some newspaper articles about it. Before that wedding, I had a special stole that they had made that was about their relationship. And I wore that stole during their wedding. Following the wedding, I gave that stole to a project called the Shower of Stoles. And it was a project that housed stoles from clergy who were lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender who could not serve in their denominations in the way they were called to serve. They had been put out. They said, no, God's not calling you. And so my stole was a part of that display that went around. Um, Later, I formed a, um, I, I went to work in Chicago for, Nation, for Reconciling Ministries Network, which was the advocacy group for LGBT people in the Methodist Church. We had a big conference, a big national conference. And so one of the things I did was I planned that conference in a place that would be upsetting the people. <laughs> Do the wedding on the streets, plan the conference where it would be upsetting. So we went to... Lake Junaluska, North Carolina. And Lake Junaluska, North Carolina was a big assembly hall for United Methodists. It's kind of like their Jerusalem. They would go there as a holy place. And it was one of the last places to not be whites only. 
in the United Methodist Church. And so it had a history of racism. It also existed on land by indigenous peoples that were killed and, and um, sent elsewhere. And so in that space, we planned our retreat, our, and we had six, 700 people be there. We felt like we needed to cleanse the space, right? You know, there was just so much harm that had happened. And so, so we went and we cleansed the space and made it ready for all of these LGBTQ people and their allies to show up. But then something else happened. The Ku Klux Klan showed up. And we knew they wouldn't like us being there. But I hadn't imagined that the Klan would show up. But they showed up outside, and it's illegal now in North Carolina to wear your Klansman robe. So what they did was they put it in your car where you could see it, and then they would drive real close to you, or they would, if someone was alone, especially a woman alone, a person of color, they would drive up next to them and roll down the window and show them their Klan robe to intimidate them. And so as the conference opened, we had all our people coming in from all across the U.S., and for me, as a white person, I had an experience of this, but for our people of color, it was traumatizing. The United Methodist Black Fellowship who came and participated with us, it was traumatizing. And one of those people was Bishop Mel Talbert. Mel came to support us in our work there, came to Lake Junaluska. Uh, there you see him in, with his Episcopal stole on, the honor of a bishop, uh, came to support us in that event. And as I was uh, preparing for the first worship service, I looked at the back, and I was surprised because we had the Shower of Stoles project there, but they can't see, send all of them. They only send a few. Uh, even 50 is a few. 100 is a few still of how many stoles are in that project. And I saw my wedding stole in there. And as I looked at my wedding stole, Bishop Talbert walked by, and he was talking to me. And I said, well, look, well, th mine's here. This is mine. Look at this. We did this wedding in the streets. And he asked questions about it and was interested in it. And then I went on because I was in charge of the service to get people ready. We were in a really crowded space, the 600 of us. And it was just packed full of people who wanted to be there, uh, supporters from across the U.S. So I have a picture of that space. And then we got ready for worship. We almost couldn't get the procession down the middle aisle. There's a middle aisle there. Can you see it? <laughs> there is a middle aisle. And so uh, while I was doing this, I turned around just in time to notice that Bishop Talbert was starting to walk, make his way down the aisle, and he had taken off his Episcopal stole. He took my stole off of the rack and was wearing it down proudly in the procession to start off worship. In that moment, he took on who I was. The Klan is protesting outside. One of our first black bishops in the Methodist church is putting on my queer stole. Being Jesus for me. We've cried a lot putting this, this, this series together. Until you see the system, you don't understand that there is one. But once you see it, you can't unsee it. In America and all the countries we have touched, we've exported and promoted the myth of chosenness, of exceptionalism, of whiteness. So if whiteness is the broadened definition of exceptionalism and chosenness, how then do you explain 
when an African-American man is elected as the president of the United States of America. He has been elected to be the leader of the free world. Not once, but twice. What happens to the understanding of chosenness when even whiteness is no longer exceptional? Dr. King was called a troublemaker and a race baiter 50 years ago when he led and called for a civil rights and economic justice movement. He called for a poor people's movement of all people to address the glaring realities of poverty. And even as he loved America, he loved it enough to say, let us be dissatisfied until all America will no longer have a high blood pressure of creeds and an anemia of deeds. He understood until we acknowledge the goodness of all people, the chosenness of all people, we would not be able to stand together as a beloved community, as creations of the God who lives in each one of us. For Trudevon, for my girls, for myself, the presidency of Barack Obama validates the truth we knew before 1619, that we are the descendants of those who have chosen to survive. We claim our own distinct chosenness. For Trevon and those who look like him in the US, it means that as a people, we no longer allow others to define who we are. We continue to live our lives full of love and faith and hope and joy. We pursue life, liberty, and happiness. And we demand our inalienable rights as Americans. Under the oppressive forces and pressures of extremism, we weren't meant to survive. We were expected to expire, to give up. But we chose to survive. And not only survive, but to thrive. Dr. King had a dream then. Troy and I have a vision for now. It's a vision based on our faith in the good of all races. We sincerely believe that millions of others are prepared to join the effort to become repairers of the breach caused by slavery, segregation within our human family. So we stand together against systems and policies rooted in systemic classism and racism. Our agenda is Jesus. Jesus and justice, and those two can't be separated. We know who we are. We know we are called to bear witness at this moment in history that we can be better. We can be better as a faith community. We can be better as a state. We can be better as a nation. We can be better as a world. We will call out coded language like make America great again because America is already great. That's coded language sometimes for whiteness, for chosenness, for exceptionalism. Our roles as your faith leaders is to offer a prophetic moral message to inspire you, 
to breathe life into the masses who hardly dare to hope for more. It is our given community. We, we, we are to give this community and all those that we touch permission to morally act up for the good of all people. Henry David Thoreau wrote in Civil Disobedience, the only thing I repent of is my good behavior in the face of injustice. So we stand together full of hope for us as a community of faith, for us as citizens of the U.S., for us as citizens of the world. We ask that we follow Jesus, who calls us out of exceptionalism, calls us out of not seeing, into being a disciple so that we may live together. We call us into being disciples of Jesus to stand together for that work in this world. Will you stand together with us? It's a as question. We become, <laughs> as we become repairers of the, the breach. Will you stand? Will you stand together with us? The world doesn't want you to hold one another's hand. May we be disciples and go forth doing just that. Amen. Amen.